Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry, where we tackle social, political, and cultural issues from the perspective of unapologetic guests while highlighting citizen activists doing amazing things throughout the country. On today's episode, you'll hear my conversation with Matt McGorry, someone who is fighting for change and using his platform to help make the world a better place. From body image and masculinity to his strong identification as a feminist to speaking out against injustices, Matt exemplifies what it means to be an ally. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm Matt McGorry, and I am unapologetic about being a radical anti-racist and anti-sexist white man. Sorry, not sorry. I think there's a, a reframing of, of a question that is important for us as men. And the question is not, are we sexist? It is, do we know that we are sexist? We're more comfortable with our teenage boy getting angry and punching a wall than we are when he goes into the bathroom and cries. I think it is you know, part of the responsibility of privilege as a uh, natural-born citizen here, as, uh, as a white person, um, and as someone with... Uh, various privileges that allow me to put my body on the line in a way that where I am taking less risk than even my undocumented friends here who are showing up and and facing a lot more. We need to not only speak out against abuse, but to demonstrate how our culture perpetuates and normalizes this violence through sexist jokes, locker room talk, slut shaming, and talking about and treating women in dehumanizing ways. Trump and friends have lit a fire under the collective asses of disgruntled white people, the ones that feel like they're losing their America. We as white people must take accountability and do something about it. It is our work too. So tell me about your childhood, because you have a really interesting, to where you got to right now is a very interesting trajectory. Yeah. So I grew up in, I grew up in New York City. I grew up in New York City. I grew up in Chelsea, um, and which I... Usually for people that did not grow up in Chelsea or in New York City strikes them as funny or they wonder what that experience is like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah. and what do you tell them? Well, it's interesting because people are like, oh, what is it like growing up in New York City? And I say, I really don't have a parallel to compare it to exactly. Right. Um, but I will say that there's definitely, and my relationship with it has, has changed as I've grown older. Um, and I'm also working on repairing my relationship with it as well. Um, but I think a lot of the some of the things that I that I picked up growing up in New York City are this this pace of life um, that is exhausting, exhausting. Yeah, you know the the city that never sleeps is like a a proudly worn badge, and I find that in our culture there's so much of that as well, where people just talk about like, oh, I'm so busy, you know, and it's just mm-hmm. like we mm-hmm. just it's it's almost how we it's how we identify. Right. Um, 
And so for me, uh, as I've grown older and as I've been in LA for the last six years or so, it's actually, it's been a conscious effort to sort of rethink and, and relearn that. And even as I go back to New York now to, to be conscious about what it means to have boundaries, uh, so that I'm not constantly overextending myself. I, I also, it's interesting. I find that for people that visit LA, including myself before I lived here, I was not, I was not about it partly because I didn't know how to slow down. So right. for me, it just felt like, I'm like, what is everything? What's happening? What is everyone doing? <laughs> and I was like, what is everyone doing with their time? Bit? Like, you know, I have the days so much longer here. <laughs> exactly. Right. <clears throat> and, and instead I, I realized that, oh, maybe it's, once I moved here, it was actually a pretty quick transition. And I was, I realized, well, first of all, I'd learned to drive coming out here. And I, and I learned. How old were you? Uh, tw- I'm 32 now, six years ago. So 26, is that right? Yeah. Something like that. So pretty late. Um, but I realized I love driving. I love being mm. in my car. I can listen to music. I can call my parents. I can listen to podcasts. And in New York, yeah, I mean, the predictability also of time, even though traffic is obviously a thing in LA, we know that. But at the end of the day, it's not that unpredictable if you're looking at like your ways in terms of how long it's supposed to take right. to get someplace. Whereas New York, you could get a cab, you couldn't get a cab, you might yeah. miss the train. You might get knocked off the train platform, you know, any number of, any number of, <laughs> any number of deaths exactly. that occur. There's like infinite deaths, you know. <laughs> so your childhood was pretty normal. What did you want to be when you were little? Yeah. Um, well, I, I was always interested in performing since I was really young. Um, I started doing magic uh, very early on. Do you still do magic? I no. Love magic. I no. Do you? Yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, well, this is one of the unique experiences about, well, first of all, growing in New York, growing up in New York, and then also, you know, a certain degree of financial privilege that I think makes that experience so much more, uh, the possibilities so much more at yeah. your fingertips is that like growing up, one of the best magic stores in the country was like a couple blocks from where I grew up, right? So, and then when I ended up becoming a personal trainer, one of the best gyms in the country was very close to, and of course, having the financial resources to be able to go there and having my parents be able to you know, take time on the weekend to take me. It was a very big part of sort of my development, um, you know. Um, and then then after a couple of years of magic, I realized that it was really uh, the performing that I loved. Then I went to LaGuardia High School, which was the performing arts mm-hmm. high school. And that mm-hmm. was, that really blew my mind at the time. And That's so cool. Yeah. I wanted to be the first ballerina astronaut in space. Wow, I yeah. love that. Do you think it'd be harder or easier to be a ballerina in space? Like, it would probably be harder. Right. That does make sense. Yeah, right? Just to even get and there. And just harder I guess on your body. To, for sure. On your bones and everything. Is that right? I mean, imagining like with the gravity, there's like less. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could do more special tricks. Right. <laughs> but generally speaking, you'd have to be an astronaut. So yeah. it would be definitely harder. But I was, I was always so fascinated by space. Yeah. And how little. And it was amazing how. I understood at when I was little mm. that it made me feel little. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. those things of that I think we're all we all have imprinted on us that the curiosity to ask why. Yeah. Do you think that everybody has that? It's a good question. I feel like everybody has that. I don't know. I'd I'd like to th- think so. I'm wondering how you know, actually being being spiritual is rather new for me, um, interestingly. So I think I certainly thought about what does my life mean in, in many ways that were not as sort of deep and 
vast as they are currently. Um, but, you know, I think everyone at least has the thought of like, what is the purpose of my life? Um, and I think sometimes that the context of the universe can, for some people, I think actually at an earlier point in my life, it probably daunted me. I probably didn't want to think about it. And I think that's partly because the way that I viewed what I thought that it meant to be special, you know, the way that I viewed what I thought it meant to like matter in the world and, and the legacy that I wanted to leave behind, which, you know, actually I feel that my view around that is, is much more healthy and developed now because there is a degree of not being able to control, um, and sort of comfort in that. Yeah. Um, yeah. That I Were like, you ever a control freak? Uh, let's see. I've definitely unlearned a lot of perfectionism. Um, particularly, That's a good way to, to describe it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, particularly in the last year or so, um, I learned that I actually, I have had a lot of fear of failure that most people would not necessarily guess because I have taken very bold, I've, I've taken very bold stances and, and pursued bold paths in my life, you know, and, and, and done so rather successfully. I was a personal trainer for 10 years. And in that world, I was, you know, writing for fitness magazines in my early twenties and I was competing in powerlifting and bodybuilding. But I've realized also that part of the perfectionism is, as Brene Brown says, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding a shotgun. Mm. Um, so this idea of what am I trying to cover, I think, by also um, basing my identity around what I can achieve, particularly as someone that is socialized as a man in the society that's very much validated. You know, it's like, as, as long as you're externally doing well, making a good living and achieving more and more career success, success, a lot of people won't necessarily challenge that and actually say like, are you, are you happy? Like, yeah. how's your quality of life? <laughs> you know. When, when perfectionism is driving, shame is always riding shotgun. We struggle with perfectionism in areas where we feel most vulnerable to shame. Does that make sense? So we're all comfortable saying, yeah, I'm a little perfectionistic, which is code for like, I do things really well. Um, but I don't really, I'm not comfortable saying I have shame. But perfectionism, what is that? I call it the 20-ton shield. Here's what perfectionism really is. It's a way of thinking that says this. If I look perfect, live perfect, work perfect, I can avoid or minimize criticism, blame, and ridicule. Whoa, that's good. All perfectionism is, is the 20-ton shield that we carry around hoping that it'll keep us from being hurt. When in truth, what it does is it keeps us from being seen. So personal trainer, you com- you comp- are you competitive? I'm, I was competitive in my own in my own way, which in some ways was like I wanted to win by my standards. So the interesting thing about powerlifting, for example, is which is it's the sport of the bench press, the squat, and the deadlift. And in competition, you know, it doesn't really depending on who shows up that day, you'll win or lose. So for me, uh, you know, the, the, the thing that I did like about it was you were in control of if you hit your own personal best or not. Mm. So for me, I'd rather hit a personal best and lose the competition than, you know, do what I've done before or, or less and win. Cause that, that doesn't really matter as much to me, but in my own mind, I was competitive. And, and of course my own sort of most stringent and worst critic, um, for a lot of my life until. Did you ever play team sports? I did. I wasn't particular. I was, I'm not a naturally athletic person. Um, <clears throat> so, and I, I think I didn't like, 
I, I mean, there was definitely a quality of individualism where I didn't want to rely on someone else. I wanted the credit if I did That's the That's what I was getting to. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and particularly because it was not an area that I was uh, particularly gifted in. I, I did do it. And, you know, I went to an all-boys sports camp for a little while. And speaking of, you know, thinking of like, thinking that you know what you want until you've seen something different, right? And I went there a couple of years and it was, you know, had my experience of not being good at sports there and, and all that all that that meant in a highly structured environment and then ended up going to this uh, performing arts camp that I was really resistant to. And my parents mm. showed me the the video for it and it was co-ed, first of all, which was very exciting to me <laughs> as, a, as a teenage boy coming into teenagehood. Um, and also just there was like all sorts of, like I got to try, I got to do dance there and all sorts of really amazing different kinds of, of programs in a much more sort of relaxed way. So how old were you when that happened? I probably went, I want to say like maybe 11 or 12 for the first time. Well, wow, so you were pretty young. Yeah. So did, did you grow up with two parents? I did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, my parents have always found a really good balance of that, of allowing me to, uh, you know, explore and be who I wanted to be. And at the same time, you know, give me the nurturing and affection and, and support uh, that I really wanted. How did they do that? Teach me. Great question. <laughs> therapy, uh, a lot of therapy, you know, um, for all of us, which is great. Um, I've been I've been in therapy since I was fourteen years old. It's great. Um, which is a very New York sort of thing, I think. Um, and you know, having a, I think, an open dialogue about it, and you know, and just you know, I know that the nature of the the thing is that, like, I'm sure that they wish they did some things differently, and. Um, but and you I, have brothers. I have brothers, yeah, two half brothers. So, did you have other strong women in your life besides your mom? Um, I did not have like sisters, and my aunt um, passed away when I was pretty young. Um, uh, I mean, I think that I think that the thing, the answer is, of course, like there are always strong women in our lives, except that as men and as boys, I you don't typically. Uh, learn to regard them as such, you know? Um, I mean, I, I can just speak for- Was your therapist female or male? Male. From my own experience, I feel that there's so many, you know, if you ask most men what, he, you know, if they have any heroes that are women, of course, they're most likely to name like their sister or their grandma or their mother. But if you take it outside of family, uh, most men would not say that they have any heroes that are women, which is really interesting. But By women the- have heroes that are men. By the way, I just asked this question to my son's first grade class mm. because I went and I, I it was my day to read to them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I brought Goodnight Stories for Rebel Girls, mm. which are all stories about incredibly historic women. Yeah. And I picked like, I don't know, five different women and that's what I read them. And then I said to them beforehand, I said, so there are, I think we could all name historic men. Right. Let's name some historic men, men right. that have made history. And it was, you know, George Washington mm. and Abraham Lincoln. And, you know, my, my music loving son was like John Lennon, you know, and there were so many amazing, profound mm-hmm. dudes that they mentioned that they were Martin Luther King Jr. Just mm-hmm. aware. Gandhi. One kid said Gandhi. I asked the same question. I said, historic women. Mm-hmm. Are there any historic women that you can name? Do you have any idea what they said? Mm, was there either a silence? Was there a silence? Katy Perry. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. 
Lady Gaga. Mm, interesting. But they could not right. name any historic women, which yeah. I thought was very telling. Very telling. Yeah. You know, and that's this day and age. Of course. Right? Yeah. When they're learning about all of these incredible men. And in this day and age, they could not mention one woman that had made history. Right. And and then, right, the question is like, what does that do to the boys? The boys. What does that do to uh, the girls in terms of their perception of themselves? In terms of, you know, if we don't see ourselves, obviously, this is the part of, you know, the importance of representation is if we don't see ourselves reflected, we have a hard time imagining the possibility of us. If you can't um, see it, you can't be it. Exactly. And as boys, we just learn to devalue women, you know, um, the same way we do it with, you know, history is written by the winners and, you know, most published historians are going to be white men. And so they're going to be publishing through, through that lens that they don't necessarily realize that they have. Right. Or I should say that, that we have, that we don't realize that we have very often. Um, and unfortunately it's part of the continuing perpetuation of that, you know? Um, and what a, what a, <laughs> what a, what a miss to not as a boy or a man have any women that we like sort of idolize as heroes. Mm -hmm. Um, we're, we're basically erasing half of the population of the planet. Um, and I, and I think that's, that's a really you know, an important sort of like key point of, again, yeah, what, is, what does that do to our psyches? What does that do to the way that we see women and treat women in our lives? Um, and, and I think it, it does a lot, to be honest. Here we have these women who changed the course of America, the history of this nation, and we don't know about them. The Gina Davis Institute on Gender and Media did a study across all the popular films in 11 countries around the world. And what that study found is that only 31% of those films had women with speaking roles. And only 23% of those films had a female protagonist. So if we go by what Hollywood is showing us, then there are no female heroes in this world. Or they're so few and far between that they're barely worth mentioning. Their stories aren't worth Telling. And, and it's even up till the 80s, computer science was sort of 30 to 40 percent women, and we've just tanked. You know, we talked about Steve Jobs. There's these incredible photographs from the launch of the Macintosh in the 80s, yeah. and there's uh, the Rolling Stone pictures that, that were published. And so the historic record shows this group actually of uh, 10 people in a pyramid, um, actually 11, seven men and four women. And every photograph you see uh, with the Mac team, Joanna Hoffman, who was the product manager, a great teammate of Steve Jobs, Susan Carey did all the graphics and user interface, art artist side. None of them made it into the Jobs movie in the Mac scene. They're not even cast. And every man in the photographs is in the movie and with a speaking role. And so it's just it's debilitating to our young women to have their history or almost erased or uncalled. There are so many options out there when it comes to vitamins, so it can be tricky to know which ones you should take, especially as women. We need an effective multivitamin that we can trust. Kat Schneider realized that this just didn't exist, so she decided to create her own and founded Ritual. Ritual Essential for Women is the multivitamin reimagined. It's obsessively researched and designed for women 
by women. Ritual contains nine nutrients that are difficult to get enough of every day, even with a healthy diet. And instead of taking a handful of different vitamins, Ritual makes it easy with just two capsules a day. I've switched to Ritual, and I love that it's vegan-certified, sugar-free, non-GMO, gluten- and allergy-free, and best of all, I don't feel nauseous afterward because their capsules have a no-nausea design. How genius is that? I love that they're transparent about where they source their ingredients, and they have all the information on their website right there. You can order online, and for about $1 a day, it's delivered to your door monthly. So you should go ahead and try out Ritual. They're giving my listeners an exclusive offer for 10% off your first three months. Visit ritual.com slash Alyssa to start your ritual today. That's 10% off your first three months at ritual.com slash Alyssa. Now that summer's over, I am ready to get back into eating healthy. But I've been busy filming and recording, so it's hard to find time to look for recipes, and meal prep just seems so overwhelming sometimes. And that's why I love Daily Harvest. Daily Harvest makes it so easy to eat fruits and vegetables with thoughtfully sourced, chef-crafted food that can be prepared in less than five minutes. They have more than 65 options, like ready-to-blend smoothies, refreshing chilled soups, and savory harvest bowls. Everything stays fresh in your freezer until you are ready to eat it. All of the ingredients are sourced and selected for maximum nourishment and peak season flavor. I love their cauliflower rice and pesto. Yum. It tastes so good and is so healthy. So if you go to dailyharvest.com and enter promo code SORRY, you can get $25 off your first box. That's promo code SORRY for $25 off your first box at dailyharvest.com. There's so many little things that we don't think about that we instill. I mean, even the most evolved of us or what, you know, we, we try to think that we're evolved. You know, my husband, who's incredible and loves women so much, but he was guilty of saying every time he left town, take care of your mother. Yeah. I finally said to him, like, what is that? Like, I can't take care of the house. Right. Like, I can't take care of myself. Like, every time you say that, you're saying that I need him to take care of me, which yeah. is really fucked up. Yeah. We got to be conscious of those those things that we're conditioned to say. Absolutely. I think our, you know, our language defines our reality and it's both a product of, and it reproduces the culture that we, we live in. Right. So, I mean, and whether that's, you know, the subtle unintended things, like you said, you know, telling your, the, you know, your son to look out for mom or whether that's even overt, more overt things that there's a, there's a wide spectrum in there, you know? And, and for me, that's always, the important question is like, how do I continue expanding that knowledge and that consciousness so that I am creating language and using language in a way that is both liberatory for me and for the people um, that I'm in community with and in the world at large? Um, because it does have such, it has such an impact um, that oftentimes 
again, particularly with people that have, you know, if we're a part of the dominant group, whether it's men when it comes to gender or white people when it comes to race, uh, we just don't really think about it much because we don't have to think about it much. Um, Right. But the impact is very real, obviously. Okay. So you wanted to perform, you knew you wanted to perform, Mm -hmm. you're still trying to figure out what you wanted to do at, at, as a teenager or did you know for sure? Uh, I, I pretty, once I put down the magic, I knew that acting was sort of in the cards. It was in the cards for me. Um, although I will say that I had to, you know, I was having a, I was becoming quite successful in my personal training career. So there was a definitive moment of choice that did have to happen. It was my last year of competing, which was, um, self-imposed brutality. Um, did you ever take PDs? I did not. P, P no. performance enhancing drugs, PEDs. PEDs, is yeah. it? Yeah. Okay, yeah. No, I, I didn't. Um, but unfortunately, I didn't need to do that in order to, you know, do very harmful things to my own, uh, you know, mental state, you know. Um, in that last year of competing, I competed in three different weight classes um, and was nationally ranked in the deadlift in three weight classes. And then I did a bodybuilding show, um, which was the, you know, dieting to the point of oh just i can't i don't know how they do that disease yeah exactly it's really it's terrible it's terrible because they don't live their entire lives like that right like Mm -hmm. they eat like normal people but when the competition is sort of happening that's when they binge and is that true well it's sort of i think it's a little bit the other way i mean Here's, the, I think, the thing when it comes to eating and eating or you can call it dieting disorders in a way which, I mean, you're essentially replicating in a sense when you're training for, when you're getting ready for competition is you can't eat in such a disordered, highly dieting way and have it not affect your eating when you're not doing that too. Right. Right. So it's 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 actually uh, a seesaw effect. So I think in many ways actually what happens is because I went from doing the bodybuilding show, dieting, losing 40 pounds over four months. And then, <gasps> and then deciding that. How did you do that? Not um, that I would ever do it, but it, was it just protein? Was it? Uh, everything I ate was cooked, weighed, and measured. Um, oh my god! I sent weekly photos to a coach. Uh, did you obsess about food? Because every time I diet like that, I obsess about everything I can't have. Absolutely. I mean that that's that's our body. That's a way that the body tries to adapt to tell us to eat, right? By making, almost turning up your ability to taste food even, right? Uh, at the end, towards the end of the bodybuilding show, I thought, oh, this is great. I'm, I'm tasting food. I'm enjoying food more. But actually it's the body telling you, please fucking eat. We want to make it so appealing that you have to eat. Wow. Um, and so, yeah, it was, uh, you know, in that time there was, it's just, I wanted to do it to challenge myself. But again, now I question the parts of my identity that like made me think that, that was a good choice. Um, but I actually think that it ends up, it exists on the same spectrum as a lot of the stuff that we see very normalized in our culture when it comes to dieting, right? Which is that we assume that if someone lost weight, that it's a good thing, right? We compliment someone if they, if they've lost weight, which is frankly, it could be anxiety. It could be. An, That's uh, right. The grief diet. Exactly. It could be any number of things. Um, and even in terms of you know, we often will joke about, oh, I, you know, I have a flu, I lost weight, it's great. But part of, you know, expanding the consciousness is understanding that in doing that, we're actually reinforcing that thinness should be the norm too. Um, so there's a great movement, the health at every size movement um, that is very much, and body positivity as it relates to sort of the original purpose of it, which was, you know, fat, uh, sort of fat acceptance, um, rather than this idea of kind of what it's become is just like everyone love your own body, 
which is great, but that's not necessarily going to dismantle the systems that impact those that are most marginalized by it. So it's not just how do I love my own body, particularly if I tend to fall into the more sort of uh, the category of normative bodies, but as an ally, right, as a person who is in a more traditional, traditionally accepted body, how do I actually leverage my privilege in that to affect it for someone who doesn't have that privilege as well? This is also something that I think has to do with masculinity in a way because Mm -hmm. I think we don't think that men freak out about their body. Yeah. And I almost feel like when they are those men that do freak out about Mm -hmm. their body, they do it more severely almost Mm. than women do. There, I mean, there's an aspect with the men, obviously, that like in general, we're not supposed to talk about the feelings, right? And if we're not also used to talking about them, we can't even recognize that we feel that way. Yes. So even if we're talking about conversations around feelings and emotions, uh, like that was something that, you know, for someone that has like a pretty natural propensity towards this, (laughs) uh, until a few years ago, it's, you know, I was in a relationship uh, with a woman and she was asking me what I was feeling. And then I would just explain the situation. She's like, what are you feeling? And I couldn't even like process. She's well, like, I know I was there, right, exactly. but what do you feel about <laughs> right, it? Exactly. <laughs> um, and so I think the, the first step is also even being able to acknowledge that. Um, but again, in a culture where this is normalized, we don't even know the harm that is, that we are doing to ourselves. So, you know, when I started out uh, my first, you know, TV show, Orange is New Black, and I was shirtless, um, I was crash dieting and dehydrating myself beforehand, um, you know, and were, and didn't even think, you know, when I got to the point where I was doing sound afterwards and like saw my shirtless scene, thought that I had like, you know, missed the opportunity to do it the way that I should. And of course, no one had necessarily said anything about it, but also I wasn't really able to recognize what is the cost of this uh, not only, I mean, to my body and to my health actually too, right? Cause that's the thing is like, we assume, yeah. oh, you're, you have a six pack, you're healthy, but not really. If you're mm-hmm. actually crash dieting and have a lot of anxiety around it, dehydrating yourself, dehydrating yourself, having, you know, weight and you swings. knew how to do it because exactly. you, you trained just like that, right? Exactly. So you knew exactly how to do that. Exactly. But I think it's, I mean, that's this new question too of, right? Like just because women shouldn't have to go through it, that doesn't mean men should have to go through it. And it's, or it doesn't mean that men don't go through it. Exactly. Which I think is important to recognize. Like men feel that too. Exactly. And and I think what ends up, I think where the the tricky part ends up coming in oftentimes is when men are like, well, it's the exact same thing that you're doing to women, which is not really true. Um, but I think that they're both important. Uh, I think as men, you know, I feel, I feel okay centering this conversation because I also know that I'm again, working and thinking about, how do how do I support or sort of go against these systems when it impacts uh, people that are more you know that have more pressures around it? Um, but yeah, it become it becomes this thing that's very normalized and 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 it's just my relationship with my past has changed very much. And, you know, I, when I did press originally, when the show started coming mm-hmm. out, it was that's all, always fun, isn't it? Exactly. Well, the hook <laughs> is you know they always want a hook, and so yeah. the hook was around the powerlifting and bodybuilding. They'd show the photo. And I'd kind of laugh and say, oh, yeah, it was a really dark time in my life. But the more I've really started to process it and just recently doing press, I was like, you can show it if you want. I'm just going to tell you that I basically had an eating disorder um, and that I that I would have probably died if I'd stayed in that state for a week, you know. Um, but then these are the photos that live on forever. These are the photos that I use for my, for my fitness career the same way that the photos, you know, and the video of us that's dehydrated in our condition that we might only look like for, you know, 
half a day are the photos that, you know, last in eternity of us. Um, and then we end up being held up to our own image of, our, of ourselves. It's just, it's just really, uh, shitty and disempowering. And, uh, I think again, continues to perpetuate the idea that we look this way, even when we don't look this way most of the time, you know, and that's another thing about representation too, is like, you know, as I'm sure you know, that the size and the bodies of people that we see on the screen, um, has a huge impact of, of the way that we view ourselves, and, and most of us don't even know that you could be someone who is, you know, if you want to go by the technical term, which I think is problematic, obese or, or, uh, the term that is used now more in the body positivity movement is, uh, if you're fat or chubby or a person of size, you know, in the working to just dis- sort of destigmatize that, um, that you can actually also be healthy and be those things, right. <laughs> you know? Um, so yeah, there's a lot of erasure there, but did you have to like do some deep dives into your own shit to figure that out? Cause I, I, you're, I feel like far too young to, to get that aspect. Yeah. Like, did you recognize that it was a, that it was a thing while you were going through it? Or is this in hindsight, this clarity? Yeah, this is in hindsight. I mean, look, the, th- the thing is we know that, um, the privilege of thinness and fitting in a normative bodies, for example, it, it has privilege associated with it. Right. So I knew that in the fitness industry, if I got the quote unquote street cred of not just being a power lifter who was strong, but being a bodybuilder and someone could manipulate his own body in that way, that that would actually work to my benefit. Right. So it's not that we're, you know, these are just imagined constructs. They're also, they fit into a greater system that, that advantage, that gives us advantages based on those privileges. So. And perception is what you're describing as other people's perception, what you wanted other people's perspective perception to be of you. Exactly. That's exactly right. And so I could always say, oh, well, I did that. Um, and that would always count for something. Um, but you know, during, at the time it was, you know, I did it because I knew that it was going to be the hardest thing to do for me. Um, and again, that goes into this idea of, you know, a lot of things, but also this sort of socialization as a man of like, you know, my identity and my worth is based on how much I, can struggle and, and, and fight and, you know, climb tooth and nail. And this idea that everything has to be hard too. Like it's only new, it's mm. relatively new for me to think like, well, maybe, you know, in the ways that it doesn't have to be hard, it shouldn't be hard. But it's been this, always this interesting balance of like, yes, I can transform my body, but also how much of my life do I want to also just not be okay with it mm. right mm. like and that's so normalized that right. like all of us are insecure about our bodies but i'm like what if i actually also just met myself like in the middle or further do you, you remember the first time you had like body image issues yeah. you used to like work out yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. i just, to, I just I mean, got offended like, you said you used to work out right i know at one point it was like more of like your main yeah, focus yeah, in yeah. life you know i, what think I, mean? I guess actually, that's what i, I think you look say. fantastic but it's interesting that that is even an insult <laughs> right or that we right. would take it yeah exactly as i eat my carbs the fact that you have to name your carbs yes exactly just be like this is bread you know i was always skinny you know always always very slim and i got teased a lot um a lot of girls, oh, you're skinny, you're skinny. And that, that affects me. That, that led me to want to lift weights mm-hmm. and eat more. Fast forward to today, I mean, that was like, that started in grade school. Today, I still it still affects me. Mm-hmm. I can be as mindful as I want. I'm still, you know, in the, in the bathroom looking at myself. 
I feel you there. Yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I love subscription boxes. They make things so easy. So get this. There is now a subscription box for our kids that's fun and educational. Our kids are the future, so it's our job to prepare them and empower them to be creative, confident, and fearless in all of their endeavors. And KiwiCo's innovative projects can help do that. KiwiCo creates super cool, hands-on projects for kids that make learning fun. They have seven lines to choose from for kids of all ages, and you get a new box each month. What's included in that box? All the supplies for that month's project and details with easy-to-follow instructions and an educational magazine to learn even more about that month's theme. KiwiCo is a convenient, affordable way to encourage your children to be anything they want to be. There's no commitment. You can cancel anytime. Monthly options start at $16.95 per month, including shipping. For my listeners, go to KiwiCo.com slash Alyssa to get your first month free. Every day counts when it comes to making a difference. So don't miss out on this amazing opportunity. So when it comes to eating meat, quality really does matter. And it's so important that it's humanely raised. You know, it's better for you, the animal, and the environment. But not everyone has convenient access to high-quality meat. It can be difficult to find 100% grass-fed, finished beef, free-range organic chicken, or wild-caught salmon at the grocery store. And if you can find it, it's often really expensive. So that is why I am so excited to tell you about Butcher Box. Butcher Box believes everyone deserves high quality, humanely sourced meat. It's so easy to have Butcher Box show up right at your door, so you never have to worry about not having something to cook for dinner because there is always meat in the freezer. Each month, they ship a curated selection of high quality meat right to my home. And all of ButcherBox's meat is free of antibiotics and added hormones. It's packed fresh and shipped frozen and vacuum sealed. So right now, get this, ButcherBox is offering new members ground beef for life. That's two pounds of ground beef in every box for the life of their subscription. Plus... $20 off their first box. Just go to butcherbox.com slash sorry or enter promo code sorry at checkout. That's butcherbox.com slash sorry or enter promo code sorry at checkout. Enjoy. Was there a moment where you realized the power of your voice? Yeah, I mean... And was it before you started acting, or did those things go hand in hand? uh, If you're talking about sort of in relation to social change and activism, yeah, no, that was was quite late for me, um, which I always think is kind of this fascinating idea of like, (laughs) that for someone who had the propensity to obviously be interested in, you know, what is now my life's passion, uh, that I could have basically been completely oblivious of it until I was... But do you think you were... I I can't imagine you ever being oblivious. 
Well, I mean, I think the, you were self-reflective. Obviously, you were in therapy. Absolutely, so that's, yeah. So self-reflective, and I think that you know, uh, I. I, w- I considered myself apolitical at the time, right? I think, as you're saying, it it there, it can naturally be stressful to be engaged in social justice and social change work. And in my mind, I figured, well, let me focus on the thing that I can control, mm. right? Which was very immediate, which was the powerlifting, the bodybuilding, the personal trainer training career, right. the acting career, all that stuff that was right in front of my face. I said, well, let me. This is the stuff that I can control. Um, I'd never had a. I think I existed in this like good guy limbo where no one ever really had to sit me down and have a conversation and be like, hey, Matt, you're really problematic in all these ways, even though I was very problematic in all the, in, in many ways. And at the same time, I think I still was like, quote unquote, a good enough guy that- Good that, guy limbo, I love you it. You know, where no one had to really be, we're like, oh, well, he's not the problem, right? Right. But, but I guess the truth of the matter in my, and as I sort of learned when I actually <laughs> discovered my privilege for the first time, uh, was essentially that if I'm not actually working to change the systems that give me that privilege, um, then I actually believe that I am a part of the problem. Was there a moment in time when that happened to you? Or did yeah. you have a conversation with someone that changed your mind? Did something click along the way? Because that's not something you just sort of figure out along the way sure. unless there's some outside source that makes you go, oh, shit. Yeah. I, I mean, I will say that I've I've always had a, a strong sense of Fairness. Fairness has always mm. been, and integrity have both been really important driving factors of mine. Um, I just never had the bigger lens to put on it, right? So in my interpersonal, rea- you know, relationships, uh, this was always important to me, but I never had the, the larger sort of socio-political lens through which to view that. So for me, the the first real sort of time, uh, you know, and and I'd had, you know. A girlfriend at one point who uh, was actually newly learning about feminism was very excited about it. And I was like, oh, that sounds great for you. I'm glad that you're enjoying that. But I never thought like, what about, <laughs> is this for me? <laughs> um, right. And uh, it ha- actually my my first real sort of understandings of it came when I was dating a woman who was uh, an entrepreneur and she was trying to uh, start a business and she was constantly navigating this thing of, you know, that, you know, obviously has been talked a lot about now, especially in Hollywood of, um, you know, the, the lunch meeting turns into like late night drinks and then wanting to be friendly enough that you're, uh, you know, that you're, but not be considered quote unquote leading someone on and not be like so reserved that you're like a bitch or too cold. And I, it just, and she was telling me about this and it just occurred to me, I was like, wow, I would never, never, ever have to experience this in this way. And and she said, well, this is just the way it is. And in my mind, yep. I wanted to give her something or say something to make it better. But I realized that I that I basically, I couldn't in that moment because it seemed that she was right. Um, and then I started to ask myself really, you know, okay, well, in what ways can I change this? In what ways do I perpetuate this? In what ways do my own mindsets about women and the way that i view women and the conversations that I have about women and to women and with women, um, in what ways am I perpetuating these similar sort of dynamics? What year was this? Uh, this was when I was 28. So that was two, four years ago, four years ago, five years ago, maybe. So Um, 2015. Yeah. Something like that. So well before the me too movement. Yeah. 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 And, 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 and it's like, it's that really, you know, I mean, I think the, the, 
thing about social movements that we don't really learn from the history books, which is for most of the history books, which is so important is no one could have pinpointed and said, and said on this day, me too movement was going to take off in this huge way. Right. right. No one could say, you know, with this murder that black lives matter was going to take off and be this thing. Right. So, and when we don't know that history, it is disempowering to us because to me, I think, well, I could either, you know, do this thing that like, how am I going to possibly change it? You know, these giant systems, um, or I can focus on me. And I think that's where also the spirituality ended up coming in too, is like when you're able to broaden your focus outside of yourself and to, and to really ground yourself in both the past and your, and the ancestors that have struggled and also the future and vision to the future that you want. Um, I think it creates and sustains the ability to be involved in these movements in a way that is, that actually feels like you are causing an impact. Um, because if, yeah, if you're looking for the immediate change, which is how we're taught the change happens, you know, like, oh, they, Martin Luther King marched in Washington and then the civil rights bill was signed. You don't yeah. learn <laughs> about all the things leading up to it, you know? As white people, when we're talking about race or as men, when we're talking about sexism, we need to be willing to call in other men or other white people, right? Um, the, 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 rather than calling out, I guess is the distinction. And, you know, part of that means that we, ha you know, we didn't always know what we know, right? So we have to be able to take the time to say, rather than just shaming you for making a comment, I have to actually, I think, be able to say, hey, I understand why you said that. You know, I used to think, Similarly, um, but I started to think about it this way and I realized that like actually it is my responsibility to educate myself in this way and to really create an opportunity for learning. Um, and it's, I have, you know, I, I don't do, I don't comment as much as I used to sort of online in those conversations. Um, but I have had some pretty amazing turnarounds and sometimes I just trust my instinct of even recently someone had messaged me and, and was saying like, Oh, I think your post is like missing something. It was a, it was a, uh, uh, a white woman, and um, and it was about it was about anti racism. It was on Martin Luther King Day, and um, and I responded. I did a long response, um, and then she was like, "Wow, I never thought of it that way. I appreciate you." And I was like, "Great, I'm glad you do." Here are a few book suggestions. It, it can't stop. It just you know, thank you for the information. This gentleman recently wrote an essay in which he fought for gender equality and also embraced feminism. Mm -hmm. You are a male, and anybody can be a feminist, yeah. male, male or female. Why did you choose to do that now? You know, I, it, it almost didn't feel like a conscious choice, but um, a couple events in my life kind of converged, and I sort of became more aware of the idea of privilege, essentially, that kind of makes you blind to the fact that, you know, if you're a man and you're not dealing with issues that women face uh, on a daily basis, or even if you're white and not dealing with issues that people of color face on a daily basis, right. it's easy to not realize how challenging it can be. And I started to, once I started finding out about more of them kind of digging in, and then I watched this Emma Watson speech that she did to the UN. Oh, yeah. Um, and she said, if not me, who? And if not now, when? And that really struck a chord with me. In 2015, you called yourself a feminist. I think you were probably the first dude I've ever heard say that. Mm. That wasn't, like, looking for a pussy. Sure, sure, <laughs> sure. And... I just, I, I think my question is, what, what did that mean to you at that moment? Mm -hmm. And how is it differed or different now? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, like, why did you feel like you even needed to tweet that or say it? Yeah. For me, it was, 
I couldn't believe that it was, it was not long after that, that moment, um, with, uh, the woman that I was dating at the time that I had a f- my first instance of noticing my own sexism. Um, and that was when I was, I had a, a Skype meeting with, uh, a woman who's incredibly powerful business owner and talked to my manager after and, and thought to myself, I was like, wow, she's really, nor- she's really nice, but she wasn't as warm as I expected. Mm. And then I thought to myself, wait, why would I expect her to be warm? <laughs> and like, would I expect a man in the same position to be warm? And what does that do to just my perception of her, right? What does that do to my perception of, again, these expectations? So when it, for me, when I first learned the literal, also dictionary definition of the word feminism, which is very clear, it's basically that you believe in the social, political, and economic equality of the genders. Um, to me, I, I thought, wow, how is it that how is it that none of that like this is such a thing that is so misunderstood, right. and particularly by other men? And, and at that point, I, I also thought like, and this is again, part of my own internalized bias is like, oh, I just need to let no men, men know that this is what it means. And then all of a sudden we're all going to be feminists. I'm going to be like a feminist Paul Revere riding through the streets, yes. like, you know, and that's going to be it. And it's going to be great. Um, of course, <laughs> women have been trying for a very long time and that has not worked. But I think early on it was, for me, it was about like, about educating other people. Um, and it was a little broad at first and I've had to, I've, focused it in particularly on the people that I need to be talking to, which is men, um, around not just how do we identify as feminist, but what does that actually mean in practice? How, how does that, what does that mean in terms of how we live our lives? Because unfortunately the bar is too low, right? And we see this all the time with, um, with the feminist men and, and, and the, and the celebrity lists that we're on that, uh, that, Yes, are good. There's a there's a, an important pop culture piece to that too, but that can't be the end of it. Saying that I'm a, saying that we're feminists can't be where that practice uh, begins and ends, and it has to go deep, deeper than that. And so, for me, in the beginning, I thought, okay, it means the equality of of men and women. And then, of course, I started to learn right. Oh, there's more than two genders, right? So that has right. to include gender nonconforming people. And then I had a friend push me to read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Uh, which is about racism in the criminal justice system in the United States. And it occurred to me, um, based on sort of these principles that Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw talks about in terms of intersectionality, that, you know, no one is one identity. So uh, as a white woman, um, someone's experience is going to be different than uh, as a black woman's. Um, And that doesn't mean that feminism should only include the gender component of that, but that means that we have to look about how the, all those different identities, if it's a poor black trans woman, actually impact her. Yeah. And so for me, that's what feminism continued to uh, sort of evolve uh, into evolve into, and realize that this is a never-ending process of widening my lens of, of the ways that I'm socialized to not notice uh, <laughs> oppressive mindsets. For me, you know, one of the, also the evolutions of the feminism for me was, uh, not just not just thinking that this is something I'm doing for women, but this but understanding my mutual interest and, and my and my own stake in it, which is to say, you know, as Bell Hooks talks about, the first act of you know mutilation and violence that men have to do is to themselves to basically cut off emotional parts of their own lives, right. um, and we're asked to be to create this sort of sacrificial bargain in allegiance with the patriarchy, essentially, and um, so it is only by sort of. It is because we are, we have this notion of this, you know, traditional sort of masculinity, um, that we, that we end up basically being unable to be in integrity with our values is what it is. Right. And so for me, 
in, ter- in, in terms of the integrity, and I think this is a, a key piece here, is that like there's so many men that we say that we care about women or as white people we say we care about what happens to people of color, but ultimately our actions are what show that to be the case. And I don't just mean our actions in terms of like, oh, are we nice to people of color and, and women, but do we understand that uh, you know, not being an active racist or not being an active sexist, um, is that good enough for us? Or do we actually have to say, how do I put myself, my resources, my body, my creativity on the line to form a wedge and to create a new way of being? I love Brooke Linen. I really do. Did you know that you spend one third of your entire life in sheets? I mean, this means obviously those sheets need to be super comfortable. When you sleep, you should sleep well on hotel quality sheets that don't cost hotel prices. Brooklinen was named the winner of the best online bedding category by Good Housekeeping and has more than 35,000 five-star reviews. The company was founded in early 2014 by a husband and wife who wanted to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. They just wanted comfort. They offer luxury sheets, towels, bedding, and more without the luxury markup. Get this. Did you know most bedding is marked up as much as 300%? What? I absolutely love my Brooklinen sheets. They are so comfortable and their towels are so soft. So I am excited to tell you that brooklinen.com is giving an exclusive offer to my listeners. 10% off and free shipping when you use promo code Alyssa at brooklinen.com. Brooklinen is so confident in their product that all their sheets, comforters, and towels come with a lifetime warranty. The only way to get 10% off and free shipping is to use promo code Alyssa at brooklinen.com. That's B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com. Promo code Alyssa, A-L-Y-S-S-A. They really are the best sheets ever. Okay, so with the holidays approaching, and yes, I know it's super early to talk about the holidays, you want to be able to take photos and feel confident with your smile. So I want to let you in on a little secret. I use clear aligners from Candid. Candid's aligners help straighten your teeth faster than traditional wire braces, and the treatment only takes about six months on average. Basically, what happens is an experienced orthodontist who is licensed in your state creates a custom treatment plan. They show you a 3D preview so you can see how your teeth will look after you're done. The aligners are comfortable, removable, and completely invisible, and they ship the aligners right to you so you don't have to go into an office. Also, it costs 65% less than braces. And the best part is, with each aligner purchased, Candid donates $25 to Smile Train, who brings safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe. I'm going to have a photo-ready smile by the holidays, and you can too. Go to candidco.com slash sorry and use code SORRY to get $75 off. That's candidco.com slash sorry, code SORRY for $75 off. 
So then Me Too happened, and I have a really important question for you. And I've wanted to ask you this question for Mm. a really long time. Why do you think that men in the entertainment industry did not come forward and back women up? It seems like it has been so hard to get men, the the huge men, like George Clooney's of the world, mm-hmm. to say, you know what? I support this and I am for this. And I would argue that it seems like more men came out against Me Too mm-hmm. than stood with us and beside us during this realization of our truth and our voices yeah and they still have not come forward yeah in support why yeah why are you like the only one <laughs> um you know it's it's a great question um <clears throat> i think history is one example that is telling here right and 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 you know at the end of the day uh, you know when it comes to the really critical points of like cultural shift um most people in a privileged position are not backing those that are marginalized, right? So, and and I think that is important also because it breaks things out of a binary into a spectrum of where we stand in terms of how we support movements, right? Um, you know, when Black Lives Matter was proclaimed, you know, most white people uh, were not <laughs> on board with Nobody it. Nobody got it. Right. Nobody exactly. understood what right. that meant. Right. And even, even the white people that, that, that were on board with it. If you want to use an analogy for men in the Me Too, and they're like, no, I understand that there's a problem, but, right? Right. Um, I mean, I think that part of it is through our own lived experience, we don't have the context to understand what is happening, right? We don't have the context to understand everything that is going around on around us. And, you know, when it was only when I became outspoken about these issues that women in my life who'd been in my life forever started telling me their experiences. Right. And 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 I think that's what made the movement so powerful is women started really talking in an intimate setting, not, you know, toward their platform or to their family, but to their loved ones, their closest. I mean, my husband had no idea Mm. what the abuse that I dealt with. Right. You know, he just, I just, it's not something we, that's easy to, to dive into. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 well, and to be honest, like as men, we have a history of, of not responding well to it. Right. We have a history of asking the questions that put the blame on the, the survivor or the victim. We, we minimize, we, 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 we don't exactly know what to do. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's something I saw recently. There's a saying that's like, if you're a white person that has black friends and your black friends don't talk to you about white people, then you don't have black friends. Um, and in the same way, it's like, what are the costs of our relationships with the women in our lives if they can't even tell us about some of their most traumatic experiences yeah. and if they don't trust us to hold that for them? And again, that's not, that's not really knowledge that we're necessarily born with, but we all have these moments where we face a critical sort of moment of, of a consciousness shift where we can either decide that we want to, to go into the change or we want to resist it. And for me, that was understanding that this woman I was dating was going through some shit that I would never have to go through. So I said, wow, what are the ways that I'm actually a part of the problem? Um, And I did the work to get there, right? And so that's Mm -hmm. when I say, I think part of the problem is many of us don't care as much as we think that we care. You know, Um, you know, we want people to be safe. And if we could snap our fingers, we would do it that way. But 
as men, you know, you ask most men, particularly, you know, maybe successful men who've worked hard their entire lives, you know, how do you get good at business? Oh, you know, you listen to podcasts about business, you read books about business, right. you talk to people. How do you get good about like being an ally and an accomplice to women or people of color? Uh, well, I have these ideas off the top of my head from yeah. my own lived experience. No, I know exactly what you're saying. I mean, it's, it's this tricky balance where uh, there, look, there is a culture and, and, and certainly media perpetuates this too, where we, you know, we love to like take people down, right? There, there's certainly that. Um, but unfortunately I, I do, I do hear that the, especially when I have conversations with white men or white folks or, or men when it comes to these specific issues, I do often hear the idea like, well, it's just too sensitive and this and that. Um, and whether or not, you know, cancel culture is a thing, which I think it, it you know, it is to, it is to definitely, we don't even do the work to meet people halfway right, in that. Right, to have right? a conversation. Exactly. Right. So the only way that I, reason that I know what to, know how to talk about it is the fact that I've done a lot of personal self-reflection and work around that. And I've read, and this is not to be, you know, this is not to show off, uh, but, you know, a lot of my Instagram is me posting books that I read about social justice. In the last couple of years, I've read probably about 80. So I'm educated yeah. <laughs> about it because I know that it's not my experience and me just walking through my life is not going to give me the same experience as that. But, you know, any man can walk into a woman's study section of his uh, of his local bookstore and look up a book about rape culture and and to begin to develop a dialogue for talking about it, right? And And I think that for me is is where it needs to at least start is, is, is how do we, you know, this is, these are subjects that have been talked about for a long time. And how do we plug into the work that's already going on rather than just criticizing and using as an example to using as an excuse to say, well, we're not going to do the work because if women were more friendly or if black people were more friendly or, or nicer about it, then we would be allies. I think people are terrified to do the work too, because they're afraid that they're going to recognize that they're the oppressor. Yeah. And I think that that's a really fucking scary concept for people. Yeah. And to have to face your responsibility in that within your circle, right? Yeah. If we're just talking about circles. So social justice issues, what do you think is the biggest issue that we're facing right now? Yeah, you know, the, the way my activism and organizing has developed is is around these issues that I think are the core issues at all of it, right? Which is white supremacy and patriarchy in large ways. Again, there's this sort of this spectrum that that we exist in where white supremacy is normalized, right? So the issues that we've always been working to, the manifestations change, right? Uh, the, you know, slavery in the United States, you know, colonization, uh, the way that we <laughs> wage wars for, for things like oil, for example, you know, um, uh, you know, the way we bomb countries that are mostly, you know, folks of color to save them, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, you know, these things are all a part of white supremacy. And now, you know, the, the outgrowths of that are things like the prison industrial complex, right? And, um, but for me, it's, you know, part of the reason that I think that this current president won was because of the strength of white supremacy, right? Because, you know, when you vote for, you know, policies that are sort of regressive in terms of, of a white supremacist system, you're also voting for policies, policies that are, uh, and a person that is regressive in terms of, uh, how they deal with women and gender marginalized people too. Yes. Um, so if it's not actually, if we're not really addressing that core 
root issue, um, we can kind of like do the window dressing all we want, but if we're not getting to the root of it, it's not going to be any different. And, and this is going to be true no matter, in my mind, no matter who is president, right? If we have someone on the left and probably very far left, which I would like, there will still have to be a movement of people and people taking, uh, you know, plugging into political homes and grassroots organizations to continue to move that forward. Because that's always, that's the only way that change has ever happened. And, and if we've learned anything else other than that, unfortunately, you know, it's a lie. You know, we talked about Abraham yeah. Lincoln and Abraham Lincoln only became an abolitionist because he was forced to be an abolitionist, right? right? And even most white abolitionists at the time, they might have believed in, you know, uh, wanting, you know, enslaved people to be free, but they didn't believe necessarily that they should have a vote, that they should stay in the United States, that they should be, you know, marrying with white people. And so I think when we look at that analogy now, it's like, just because we say Black Lives Matter, or just because we say it's bad that women, you know, get assaulted, um, there's a lot of nuance in there and there's a lot of gray area. And if we could learn to examine history in that way, then we can learn to think about the present in that way. And we can learn to envision who are the people that we want to be to create the change that we need. How would you describe the danger to public safety that is posed by white supremacist extremism? The danger, I think, uh, of white supremacist uh, violent extremism or any other kind of violent extremism um, is, of course, significant. We assess that it's a persistent, uh, pervasive threat. Uh, we tackle it both through our joint terrorism task forces on the domestic terrorism side, as well as through our civil rights program on the criminal side through uh, hate crime enforcement. I would say in general, domestic terrorism in this country uh, has changed in the sense that it's less structured, less organized, fewer groups, more uh, uncoordinated um, one-off individuals as opposed to some structured hierarchy, and that presents uh, its own share of challenges. So I'm going to ask you a question. Can you describe what white supremacy looks like when it's just something that happens in your daily existence? Yeah. So, you know, there's really... So people these, can recognize it. Absolutely. Within themselves. Yeah, yeah. With, with, with all these... With all different forms of oppression, there's really four levels in which it exists. There's the interpersonal level, basically me, how I've in, in, internalized all these ideas. There's the interpersonal, sorry, so the intrapersonal was the first one. There's the interpersonal, which is basically how it exists in my relationships with people and how I have conversations. Uh, there's the cultural level, um, which is the media, for example, film and television. And then there's the institutional level. So it exists in all these different levels. And, and what we want to be able to do is to understand and recognize how it does. So, you know, starting at the most basic level, right? How history is taught, right? We're taught that Abraham Lincoln freed the people that were enslaved, right? If, if we understand that history was written by the winners, was written by white men, then we understand that this is going to have an influence in terms of how we view these things, right? It's the same reason that, you know, most of the boys in the classroom couldn't, uh, and maybe all the people of all genders in that classroom couldn't name women um, that were- Historical figures. Historical figures, mm -hmm. right? It looks like 90% of showrunners in Hollywood being white men. Um, it looks like, you know, uh, the majority of people in control in big corporations being white men all down the line. And so that's that's really the th thing we have to understand is it's, it's not because of the Ku Klux Klan or the capital W, capital P white supremacists that we have 90% of showrunners that are white men. 
it's because we have this giant gap in the middle of the sort of the good guy limbo, essentially, where people who maybe are nice to women don't actively harbor any feelings of, of you know, anger against people of color, um, where we actually think that that is enough. But that is what gets us the system that we have now. So the system that we have has, has been continuing, it continues to go whether or not we, uh, whether or not we decide to support it. So we actually have to be sort of standing against it, right? It looks like in, you know, in this, you know, awful terrorist uh, uh, mass shooting, um, it looks like, you know, blaming it on the fact that uh, Muslims were allowed to uh, come into the country earlier. It looks like, you know, white, like a man, a white man who kills someone being called a, you know, uh, being their, their mental illness issues being highlighted. Um, it talking, you know, it not asking where they were radicalized, right? And, and if it's a Muslim person, it's very much that, you know, even if you look at the side-by-side, the news portrayals, um, these things are very real. It looks like not seeing, you know, well-rounded, fully human Muslim and Arab characters in television. So we end up internalizing, and this is, you know, we talked about, I think it takes time to develop sort of the right quote-unquote instincts, but, you know, once we have a feeling we can also choose what we do with that, right? And that determines in many ways who we are and shapes who we become. But are we the person that's going to call these things out or are we just going to kind of let them go, right? And I would say, if you're not noticing, you're normalizing, right? So if I'm not noticing that films don't pass the Bechdel test and women, you know, there's not two women in who have a conversation about anything other than a man and, and one of them doesn't have a name or neither of them have names, then I'm going to be internalizing that men are the heroes of the world and, uh, and women are the, prote- are the, uh, the side characters. Yeah. Um, so or the damsel in distress. Exactly. The, yeah. And, and, you know, I grew up again in, you know, New York city, like you did and sort of, I get sometimes, uh, angry or irritated when, uh, I have friends who are, you know, left, uh, white folks who talk about like this liberal bubble, but, we have 60,000 homeless people in LA and we have 59 yeah. billionaires. We have, most of these people are people of color. You know, our police department kills more people than any other police department in the country. And not a single one of them has been prosecuted in the in the last 400 people. So, you know, these issues, you know, that we've normalized, they're all a product of, of white supremacy, actually. I mean, and it's very tied to, to these other systems of oppression. But if we're not actually noticing that, then we've normalized it as this is the way that the world works. Um, and we really have to, to say, look, there's a, there's some big lifts here, right? But being in action is the thing that will keep you inspired and keep you ready and ready to keep moving. Because look, at the end of the day, you know, slavery was the, was the greatest producer of, uh, income for the United States right. of America. And it went on for hundreds of years, but there were people through that entire time who were working to end that system, right? Who had this vision outside of what this, of what the country looked like. Um, and we can't always say when it's going to happen, but the more people that are putting their head down, doing the work, finding political homes and being a part of the solution, the more quickly it's going to happen. And we just have to be able to, like you said in the beginning, you know, we have to be able to dream for ourselves as individuals in terms of our wants, but we have to be able to dream for the future of our country as well. Who inspires you to keep going with your activism and your social justice work? Is there um, someone that you can model yourself after? There's so many people. I mean, that's partly why 
the reading for me is so important. You know, I, I find oftentimes reading the news to be very stressful and because it's, I think it's often told in a way that it want to, you know, it makes you want to click on it. And it makes you want to keep going. And to me, yeah. sometimes it feels like an endless hole, but when I'm studying history, I can understand, you know, from the Howard's Zinn perspective, for example, I can understand that it was normal, everyday working people who actually created the changes, right? So, uh, you know, the people I'm in community with, you know, showing up for racial justice is my is my political home. And, and, and we organize white people to undermine white supremacy in solidarity with people of color-led groups. Um, so the community that I get to be in of people we're actively creating this world, you know, not only uh, not only in a political realm, but in our own interactions, right? Where we're really saying like, oh, how do we hold each other accountable for not perpetuating white supremacy? And I mean that even in the sense, not necessarily active racism, but this idea of white supremacy culture and even how that relates to perfectionism, right? And, and these sort of models of like uh, everything that we've been sort of internalized in our country about this bootstrap individualist culture yeah. that is really damaging, uh, frankly, to everyone. So I mean, it's the people that I'm in community with. It's, you know, a lot of folks of color, people who are directly marginalized, who, again, we've been taught to shut off, especially as cisgender white men, taught to shut off our experiences from and to, and to even want to think that we should learn anything from these people. Um, learning from them has, for me, been in some ways the most grounding and the most sustaining because again, those that are most impacted are going to have the answers that are needed. Um, so if sometimes if we can learn to sort of listen more, um, then I think we can really find uh, our own specific avenues and, and paths for, for how we need to be a part of the change. I don't have specific real tangible words to compliment you on who you are. So I'm just going to say this. I hope that my son has men like you to lead them and guide them in their manhood. Thank you so much. I see so many causes that mean so much to me. I see so many people and groups working so hard to right the wrongs in society and make it a more loving, kind, tolerant, and just place for us all. I am a member of some of these groups. For others, I am part of the group that needs to change. Now, this can be an uncomfortable realization, but it's at the heart of privilege, and it's at the heart of being an ally, confronting ourselves, our own biases, and our failures and learning from them. People often ask me what privilege is. But the best definition I have of privilege is that all other things being equal, the person with more privilege will tend to have better outcomes than the person with less. It doesn't mean that everything will go one person's way all of the time. So to be a good ally, we have to confront that. All things being equal, it's going to just turn out better for us. And we have to fully commit to changing that reality. When we're an ally, by definition, it means we are part of the group that is actually part of the problem. And we can't help until we let go of our egos. We are not the heroes. We are just trying to help clean up the messes that we actually made ourselves. The first thing a good ally needs to do is listen. Not just hear, but actually listen. And then we have to think, not react, 
think about what we're told. A lot of what we hear will be painful. It might feel unfair because we believe we are good, unbiased, unprejudiced people. But we are almost certainly a product of prejudices. If we react without self-reflection, all we'll be doing is flexing our privilege. And once we've heard and we've reflected, we need to work as hard as we can to surrender our privilege. Now, that can mean a lot of things. I try to give my microphone to as many people fighting for change as I can. Many people have committed to voting only for candidates who are not straight white Christian men when they have an option, even if they like the straight cisgendered white Christian man running for that office. We need to be intentionally inclusive of groups of less privilege when creating businesses, boards, committees, and social groups. Most importantly, we need to ask the marginalized groups what they need and let them lead the way. And we also need to learn when we fail, because we will fail. But recognizing it, admitting it, and committing to doing better will make us more helpful as allies. It's on us to do the work. We have to research, learn, and listen. I cannot stress that enough. We have to listen, listen, listen. It can be challenging. Underprivileged groups are not monoliths with single views on everything. And when we are criticized, we need to hear the criticism, go back to not reacting but hearing, and try and do better the next time. Melissa Harris-Perry presented an excellent list of what it means to be a good ally, and I'd like to just share it with you. It's something that I go back to quite often. Don't demand that those you are supporting produce proof of the inequality they are working to resist. Do recognize that the shield of your own privilege may blind you to the experience of others. Don't offer up your relationship with a member of the marginalized group as evidence of your understanding. Do be open to learning and expanding your consciousness by listening more and talking less. Don't see yourself as the Kevin Costner in Dances with Wolves or Tom Cruise in The Last Samurai. You are not the savior riding to the rescue on a white horse. Do notice that you are joining a group of people who are already working to save themselves. Do realize the only requirement you need to enter allyship is a commitment to justice and human equality. I see you. I'll always try to listen to what you have to say, and I'll always try and do better, especially when I fail. Thank you. Thank you for keeping me alongside of you. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Sim Sarna and Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our supervising producer is Allison Bresnik. It's edited by Josh Windish. Music by Josh Cook and Alicia Eagle. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry Not Sorry. Sorry Not Sorry.